0: Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app.
1: You are listening to Troubadours and Rock Tours with EW Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 264 of Troubadours and Racon Tours with yours truly, EW Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we feature a conversation with poet, essayist, and digital artist Will Dowd out of Boston, Massachusetts. We talk to Will about how he came into writing. We talk about some of his influences and uh, his book of essays that got a lot of good response, a lot of good criticism. It's titled Areas of Fog and it came about while he was writing essays about the weather to deal with a bit of writer's block he had. We also talk about some of the folks in the history of American writing who have used weather as a metaphor, going back to Emerson and Thoreau, Frost, Mark Twain, too. We talk about another project he's working on, and he has now available on the web called Broadside, and that has to do with short essays written about historical figures but sharing things about them you probably do not know. And those essays are accompanied by visual pieces that he has created digitally. We talk about writing as a means to be a protagonist day to day in your existence. And also, we talk a bit about feeling like a weirdo. Yeah, baby. A great conversation with Will Dowd today on the program. We also have an EW essay titled Enough. Another wonderfully crafted and beautifully read essay by our associate producer and resident essayist Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. And that piece is titled Household Saints. And we have a poem called Bathtub. And all of this, as is always the case, is imbued and infused with the energy of several great tunes. So nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 264 of Troubadours and Raconteurs.
2: A I know it's gone
1: he was stationed on certainly made them endure the heat. The assistant district attorney position she had just been appointed to elevated her seat in the hierarchy of family, friends, and society. The senior center is too warm in the autumn and too cold in the spring. The weather pattern natural and cultural and seemingly controlled greatly affect how we are living our lives, what and how we feel, and what we allow ourselves to be told. The commonality with which instinctively we respond to the climate changes and different precipitation patterns are astoundingly consistent, and have been from one generation to the next. I suppose this is a pretext. We are creatures of the sun, the wind and water, the moon. We are dependent on reaction, acceptance, collective direction, and communal circumstance. We, too, can be emboldened to transcend all of these factors and stimuli, when our minds, souls, and hearts can no longer wake up and habitually restart our days in the ways that don't sit well with our core components of existence. The weather we certainly share, observe, and discuss we are a part of it all. And when we deem it is time, when our better senses tell us, and we then communicate with each other, that enough is enough, we shift the winds of time. We stand up and speak. We march together and mass, and our hearts inspire and govern our minds, to do what often seems impossible. We alter the climate. We change the patterns. Oh, is this Will Dowd?
3: Yes, this is Will Dowd.
1: Will Dowd. Is this is E.W. It is E.W. It's nice to have you on the program.
3: <laughs> Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Before we get started, let me uh, share with the listeners some background information, if you don't mind. No problem. Will Dowd, poet, essayist, and digital artist, is a Boston College graduate with a master's degree in fine arts from New York University and a master's degree in science from MIT. He's a tutor who assists students with the college admissions process and an artist whose exhibit of fine art digital prints of words on weighted paper is something to be seen. His collection of essays regarding the weather titled Areas of Fog has been well received. Here are some reviews of Areas of Fog. An absolutely beautiful read. That's from WBUR Radio Boston. Quote, the essays are deep, moving, and penetrating, and yet it's still a fun read at the same time. It's a great book, Scott Jones from Give and Take, and quote, an original, highly enjoyable book to be read in all sorts of weather. Buy two copies and give one to a friend. Cease cows. Ladies and gentlemen, Will Dowd
3: on the program. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you for that introduction. That brightened my day. Appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. Um, well, I want to get right in and
1: uh, maybe try to figure out, first of all, how you came into write-
3: writing. Oh, wow. Well, um, I used to dictate stories to my mom who would write them down before I was able to write. So um it go it's prehistory for me. It's pre-memory. I guess I was like a toddler when I started to, uh, put words on paper.
1: How did she manage to do that? She just, it was like a, something that was, uh, of an, uh something she needed done or you, do you know, do you remember or do you just, you wanted to do it?
3: Yeah, no, I think I just went into like a trance and started, uh, speaking in tongues, you know, <laughs> some crazy story from my, uh, Uh, imagination and uh she wrote it down because she was amused and uh befuddled
1: that's great Uh, so you're 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 born with this this sort of uh gift or or weirdness whatever you want to call it right
3: yeah yeah i think it's a weirdness more than a gift (laughs) (laughs)
1: and uh how about some of your your uh your background some of the influences that
3: you have oh sure um well i you know i i read compulsively when i was really young i read a lot of the classics especially uh english classics novels like peter pan and the chronicles of narnia and i think that really uh informed my my life and the way i see the world because i i just had my head in a book uh, for most of my early years and so uh the reading world is always uh vying with reality um for my attention and they they both feel equally present at all times so i'm definitely a big reader um the writing is kind of a uh, a complementary activity to that um as far as some of my influences uh that i've picked up over the years um i really like the haiku poet isa kobayashi isa who wrote um, 20,000 haiku in his uh, very dismal, dreary, tragic life. And uh, I just love his, his collected works because uh, it always gives me um, hope that even uh, when you're being dragged through the mud of life, uh, you can look for these little snatches of beauty and um, acu- they can accumulate. And so he leaves behind this incredible legacy of... Uh, humor, and uh, warmth, uh, despite what his reality was. So, yeah, he's a big influence for me.
1: Oh, yeah. uh, I I know a bit of his work, too. It is, uh, I I think you said, snatches of beauty that he he shares. And, uh, yeah, for sure, for certain. And now you're relatively young, I would say. I mean, you're still in your 30s, right?
3: Yeah, I just had my birthday. I just turned uh, 34 the other week. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thank you and in in uh the
1: the world of your essays 'cause we we talked about in the introduction that you're a poet and uh an essayist you you um have put together a compilation of essays that you worked on, and I guess from my understanding it's it stems from what you described or you called a, a writer's block that you you were experiencing and um, you, you had a, a bit of a plan to get out of that, and that translated into, or turned into, this book of essays that I'm referring to. You want to give us a little, a little bit of, uh, you know, the narrative?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, I was, as you say, I was suffering from a strain of writer's block, and I had plenty of creative energy. I just didn't have a subject. Uh, I'd come out of a, you know, you mentioned earlier some of the degrees um, that I got. I was kind of. Uh, in school till I was uh, really old. I just never left. And so sometimes when you're in school that long, you can get a lot of other people's voices in your head. And so when you come out, um, you're a little bit uh, lost as to what you're supposed to do now. You're used to be being uh, handed some kind of assignment. So uh, I had a little bit of flailing around after I got out of school. And um, one day I just hit upon the idea of writing about the weather, Uh, I'm a New Englander, I've been a New Englander my whole life, and whenever we don't have anything to talk about, we talk about the weather, it's just kind of our regional tick, and so I decided to take that on and uh, use it, and for uh, every week for a year, um, I wrote an essay, and uh, it would start with the weather, just a simple weather report, and then it would kind of digress from there. but one of the uh, fun things about it was also I, f- I thought at the time, I said, well, this is just an exercise for myself to sort of emancipate myself from this writer's block. Nobody's ever going to read this. There's no pressure. I can write whatever I want. And, uh, yeah, so I-, I absolutely had no idea I was writing a book at the time. And now that it's bound and out in the world, um, it's kind of amazing to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. As you as you said, it it's really something that, um, seemingly is, is an easy subject area to delve into. I mean, there's weather every day, uh, and, and no matter who you are, you're experiencing it. And, and New England, as well as where I'm from here in northeastern Pennsylvania, I'm from the northeast as well, uh, the weather is up and down or all over the place. I mean, as we speak, it's the second day of spring, and we had uh, early dismissal because of a, of snow you know um so yeah we we sit back and talk about the weather so it's something common it connects us I, and and uh i i understand based on some of what i read you you grabbed onto some great uh observations when looking at your surroundings and people like protecting their their parking spots from uh you know being uh
3: taken after they shovel them out you, you want to share some of what it, you you saw there it, <laughs> yeah, there's there's something called the Southeast Parking Wars. Um, well, at least that's how I dub it, but uh yeah, in in South Boston, uh parking is 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 to- is limited and always a source of uh, headache for people who live there trying to find a spot, and it gets extremely contentious when there's a blizzard because um if you shovel out your spot and then leave, somebody else can can uh take advantage of all your hard work. And so what people do is they leave objects in the spots that they've shoveled out to try to stake their claim. And so, yeah, one of the essays I wrote um, during, I think it was February of that year, uh, I was writing about what kind of objects people like to to leave in those spots. And you have sometimes cones, which makes sense. Those are kind of official. But you also have, um, you know, lawn chairs and um, ironing boards and just like you know, old boots or something. And I kind of was trying to come up with the psychology behind each choice. Like, okay, maybe, you know, an open lawn chair kind of conjures the idea that somebody, you know, the owner sitting there watching you, uh, ready to spring if you, if you, uh, take the spot. So yeah, I've definitely, uh, enjoyed writing about the weather because it does bring in all of our kind of, uh, regional quirks. Um, and, uh, the, you know, I, I wrote about the uh, the how we're being taken over by turkeys uh, in the fall, and so yeah, I was able to kind of um, just cast my eye at things that maybe pass by on the evening news without much comment and really try to dig into them and see what kind of fun I can have.
1: Yeah, yeah that's that's exactly, I think, the best way from my experience to write. There's so much that is overlooked that uh, when you have that that ability to To not overlook it, to see, you know, the the complexity or the weirdness or the the poignant aspects of it. It's it's almost an unlimited amount you can write. Then,
3: yes, exactly. And I, you know, when I started uh, this this year long weather journal, it was sort of on a whim. But as I went, I realized um, just what a central role the weather places in the New England literary history um it's because it's this kind of common canvas that we all have access to it's been used by our writers and thinkers for centuries as a way to discuss big you know small questions but also big questions big metaphysical questions um you can think of emerson or thoreau or dickinson or uh frost uh all using the weather um you know extremely well and in depth as as kind of um metaphorical, uh, ammunition, um, to talk about their pla you know, man's place in the universe, man's relationship to God. And then if you go even further back, you've got, of course, the Puritans and their sermons and diaries were full of weather. And they really saw the weather as God's, you know, voice God, the way God sort of spoken, uh, declared, uh, his approval or, uh, disapproval of whatever people were doing. So, um, I think that, yeah, weather can feel kind of frivolous and like you know empty filler in our conversations, but there's a kind of hidden depth to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Even when when you're talking to someone and and uh, their take on the weather, you know, like I said, if if they're really down I, and they're looking at the weather, a snowstorm is just oppressive, and the cold is something that they can hardly take anymore. And, and when they're describing you know, their, their interpretation of what's going on with the weather, you know, that's clear that, you know, they're down. But if, if they look at a snowstorm as well, it's so beautiful, so clear, it's so bright, it's so clean. I love it. I can't wait to go play. Now they're, you know, that represents their, their sense of, you know, being joyous or for whatever reason about their life.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. Mark Twain wrote a lot about the weather and You know, famously, the quote is attributed to him. Everybody complains about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. (laughs) Uh, But but his take on New England weather was that, you know, we're put through a year of hell, but it's all worth it for one, you know, winter afternoon when the sun comes out and shines through a tree that's been encased in ice and the, the sunlight kind of, uh, comes through prismatic, uh, th- through, through the, the clarity of the tree and creates this kind of dazzling halo. And that to me is a great example of finding beauty um, in any weather. And you're right, we do sort of, our moods are projected onto the weather as much as the weather projects onto us. Um, and yeah, I think Twain got that pretty well.
1: Oh yeah, he usually does. Um, yes. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Will Dowd. On the program, troubadours and rock on tours, and uh, discussing a bit about his book of essays titled "Area of Fog," areas of fog, and uh, how weather is a great common canvas and often used as a metaphor over the the whole time, basically of of uh, our our existence as a species. Weather is a common reference point um, now. Well, when you when you uh, finished up the essays and you put them together and and uh, put them out as a book, you got some positive response. And uh, we, you know, I read some of the reviews earlier, and and now you know, I, I'm sure you you uh, are continuing with more projects. And I'm I'm, I'm wondering, do you write now because? of any reason in particular, like you must write for a spiritual uh, sort of intellectual um, health that, that you're, 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 you're trying to achieve? Or do you do it mainly to make ends meet financially? Why do you write still?
3: Um, yeah, no, I, I write because if I don't, I feel a kind of subcutaneous angst, <laughs> you know, um, I just it seems to be something I have to do um i really enjoy it um and if i'm i don't know somehow it seems like the way i the way i communicate with people the best um and so not writing is like not talking you know it's like a vow of silence if i was to not write uh it's not it's not a lot of fun so yeah so i just have it's just kind of part of my makeup at this point um maybe it's an obsession i don't know but yeah, it's it's I the definitely a day doesn't go by when I don't uh think about it quite a bit. And what about, you know, being
1: able to is that a, make your financial ends meet? Is that a big concern uh, when you're
3: when you're thinking about the prospects of writing? Um yeah, yeah, absolutely like anything else, but I I mean this as this weather book is an example that I was interested in kind of finding my voice and staking out discovering kind of my own Uh, my own writing territory and what that's going to be and what works. I still feel at the beginning stages of that. And so, um, yeah, if I was, um, I think if I had my eyes on uh, fame and riches, I probably wouldn't have written about uh, the weather uh, for this book. Um, I did that because it felt right to me uh, artistically and I was interested in it and I thought it was going to be an enjoyable time. Maybe in the future I will write something that uh, connects with you know that connects with a huge audience and makes me a bunch of money, but I, I'm not um, holding my breath for that. I'm I'm trying to just put one foot in front of the other.
1: Oh, the reason I ask is because a lot of aspiring writers, you know, some of them might be thinking they're going to make it uh, rich uh, from writing, and maybe that is a driving uh, force for them. And I, I like asking writers how they deal with the reality. Anybody who knows anything, you're not likely to get rich from writing. Uh, how you, you know, I was curious to how you would respond to that so those folks can hear your response. And to me, it seems you're writing because you love it, because you need to. And if you make some money, great, but that's not what it's about. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn.
3: That's true. Exactly. Um, yeah, to me, it really comes from, uh, writing is a, is to me a kind of, um, at once a social activity and also, um, an introspective activity. And it's a way of communicating, uh, to other people, um, and trying to communicate from a really deep place in myself. And so how that converts into dollars is really, uh, unclear. I think it's, there's a lot of chance to it. Um, and I, I mean, it's also extremely indirect. I, you know, I wrote this I this weather journal for a year. Uh, then I, like right after I finished it, I had surgery and, I, you know, I, I was kind of wrapped up in that. So it wasn't until a year later that, that I thought about putting them together and maybe seeing if they're a book and then I sent it out and then it's another year before it gets published. So, I mean, the, there is no clear one-to-one direct Okay, I've written this, you know, hand me my money. It just it doesn't seem to work that way and um there's a lot of other ways you can make money <laughs> a lot quicker and more direct. Um so yeah, I don't unless you're writing, you know, the the next Da Vinci Code, um, you know, I, I don't I don't think it would be um I think it you should see it as a pleasant surprise if if money does uh, arrive back um from the effort you put in. Yeah, well put. To me, yeah. To me, I'm just excited if people read it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I hear you. That makes that would make me very happy as well. Uh, now, my associate producer, Dr. Pavis, he put on this list of things to talk with you about, and I didn't do any research on it. I overlooked it totally. It says, "Ask him about art project broadsides." <laughs>
3: yeah, yes. Uh, I have this kind of ongoing art project, which I have. I have some of them up on my website, which is. WillDow.net. Um and yeah, for a while I've been writing it's kind of like a word art uh project. It's got um each piece is sort of a microbiography from a historical figure that I'm inspired by. And uh so uh there's a there's a research and writing aspect to it, and then there's a kind of the visual aspect to it where I'm making it into an art object. Um it's a bit it's been really fun. It's part of the reason why it's i haven't just decided to make them you know a book of poems or something why i push them into an into uh something visual is i'm really interested in um creating a different kind of reading experience and playing with the way we read and the way that i takes in information and how we um sort of interact and i think to me there's an analogy with i think how we interact with the dead and with historical figures i think a lot of times um, they become sort of two dimensional to us. They're sort of these statues. Uh, we stop seeing them as actual human beings, um, with flaws and imperfections. And, um, and so I'm kind of interested in, uh, almost hopefully subverting and making fresh, um, figures that you're used to reading about on plaques. So yeah, if people check it out, um, I would be curious to see what people think. I've gotten some good responses so far. You can contact me through my website if if you like them. Uh, I'm I'm making more of them as I go, just slowly as I go.
1: And again, that's Will W I L L Dowd D O W D dot net. You got it. Okay, and uh, I mean, so can you give me a more specific example of what one would find uh, when they're checking out broadsides on your website? What would
3: they see? Oh sure. So each one takes a different uh, historical figure and then um, tells some kind of story about them. The stories are all factually true, but um, they're all sort of. I mean, these are really well trod uh, biographies. Like I'm talking about people like Da Vinci and Frida Kahlo, you know, people who are household names. Um, But what I'm trying to do is find things in their biography, kind sort of find shapes in their life that are fresh and different and that haven't really been brought to the, to the fore. And so giving you a different angle on someone who you might already have a kind of iconic conception of them in your mind and um, sort, of, <laughs> sort of like the anti-Wikipedia, something you're not going to find um, just in the kind of generic knowledge of who this person is and hopefully something that makes them a little more human and maybe connects them to you a little bit uh, s- stronger. Is there something that pops into your head
1: uh, that you found that you shared on broadsides like uh, regarding Da Vinci or, or Frida
3: Kahlo? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I could um, give you the – I could just – I mean, they're pretty quick. In ter- they're almost read-like poems. I could read you the uh, Da Vinci one if, if you care to hear it. Sure. That might be fun. Sure. So let me just grab it. It's – here okay so this is obviously you won't have the visual component but this will give you an idea of what i'm talking about which i think will be valuable so this is um it starts leonardo da vinci worked his whole life for rich men designing giant crossbows to leaf fortresses mechanical lions that could vomit flowers he also worked for himself filling notebooks with beautiful erroneous ideas the surface of the moon, he wrote in one, is covered by a vast luminous sea. Today that notebook is kept in a dark airlocked vault in the Medina home of Bill Gates.
2: <laughs>
3: so <laughs> like there's the yeah, so there's a little uh slice about Da Vinci a sort of ironic And for one of his personal notebooks. Um, Again, I'm just sort of reading it. I'm curious to see what people think uh, when they see the visual, because I think that um, you know that's part of the conception of it. So, yeah, thanks for your interest in it, though. I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hoping to keep keep doing them until I can accumulate enough for uh, more art art exhibits and and possibly a book someday. Uh, It's a fascinating idea. Now, now the visual is something that you created or something you just kind of
1: found uh that you know comes from uh da vinci himself and you attached to uh, what you wrote
3: uh no it's something i i created and designed um so the the visuals don't have any like um any of da vinci's uh works directly but his his notebooks kind of inform the uh inform the design of it and it's a
1: digital uh creation
3: Yes, it's a digital creation, exactly. I would, I, I, would love to have a broad, to have a uh, press that I could create these broadsides. Maybe someday, uh, I've, I've been looking into it, but uh, alas, I, I don't have access to one yet. But uh, someday it would be really fun to create uh, them in the, in the old way. Wow,
1: well, and I mean, it sounds like it'd be hard to do something like that in the old way, you know?
3: Yeah, there are people, believe it or not, there are, there are hardcore. Uh, Printing press people out there who have incredible skills and uh, still keep it alive as an art form. Yeah.
1: Well, I love I love this. I wish you you, you luck with it. I'm going to check it out myself. Uh, again, that's willdowd.net that you can find the broadsides art project. Uh, now we have just a couple of minutes left. What um, what about uh. Telling us what you hope to accomplish with all this work, Will Dowd.
3: Um, <laughs> I think one of the things that I'm hoping to accomplish is just one of the reasons I love writing is because it makes you pay attention more to your own life. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I have a, uh, I was a intense reader, and so I always feel like I have one foot in another world, and so writing about this world keeps me more engaged, and uh, I think that was one of the reasons I loved keeping the Weather Journal and uh, continuing to write. Um, I think it makes me a more active uh, participant and protagonist in my day-to-day, and I actually think that's something that we can all work on because I think as we kind of interface with technology, we sort of are starting to crowd out those Moments of reflection, those moments of uh, where we're kind of cascading down um, a series of thoughts, one leading to the other. I think we're sort of short-circuiting that because, I mean, I'm guilty of it too. It's like if you have a quiet moment in line at the store, you know, out comes your phone or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think writing and, and just general uh, mindfulness is, is a way to stay engaged with your uh, actual reality. Oh, yes.
1: Well put. And I, I, do, I try to do the same thing. The other day I was waiting for my children to come out of uh, uh, an activity I had dropped them off at. And and everybody, I was standing outside, everybody was on their phones. And I was just looking at the sky and and looking at, you know, the trees and, and, you know, the landscape and the houses around the area. And for a second I felt like a weirdo because I was the only one doing (laughs) it, you know. I felt like an oddball where when I was 10, that was the normal thing to do.
3: I know. Now you're like the only you've just woken up, and everybody else is still asleep. Yeah.
1: Wonderful talking with you. I'd love to have you on the show again. Thank you for taking time out. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a it's a pleasure. Any any closing uh, insight or, or suggestion for the 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 throngs of listeners?
3: Yeah, stay warm. Uh, we had the, there's another nor'easter slouching its way towards Boston as we speak. You're getting it right now, I think. So uh, we've only got a couple more weeks of this, guys. Perfect. Thank you so much, Will Dowd. Thank you. Take care.
4: Household Saints My mother prayed every day. She said the rosary at night after dinner, watching the news or game show, shuffling the yellowing prayer cards picked up at the viewings she regularly attended. She prayed for the dead, her parents, her husband, her friends, eventually her sister, and she prayed for the living, her children, her sister her nieces and nephews, her remaining friends, and her neighbors—well, maybe not all of her neighbors. She prayed to her favorite saints, an all-star team awaiting her imprecations. My mother was as familiar with the saints as she was with the surly, burly grocer at the store a few blocks from our house, and the kindly mechanic who kept her used cars running and the drowsy doctor who watched her blood pressure and the parish priests who serviced her soul. She might have been closer to the saints than she was to any of the priests who served their terms and moved on to another parish. There were the go-to saints, on heavy rotation in our house, St. Anthony and St. Jude. Anthony is the patron saint of lost and stolen articles, a saint of daily crisis management. So when my brother would be tearing around the house, cursing and searching for his keys, my mother would ask, a little reproachfully, did you pray to St. Anthony? The implication being that, one, St. Anthony would help you find them, and two, it's your own damn fault if you misplace them, and don't blame Anthony if you can't find them. St. Jude the patron saint of lost causes, was a runner-up to Anthony. Not because he was invoked as often, but because he sort of hovered around our tiny house, checking in on the prayers of the girl who was raised during the Depression with a drunken, feckless house-painter father and the woman who was widowed at forty-four with five young children. I think my mother kept St. Jude in the back of her mind, in hopes that we didn't end up as lost causes ourselves. She had other favorites. St. Gerard, the patron saint of pregnant women, to whom she prayed when expecting me. St. Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, the patron saint of the dying, and there was always a lot of dying to pray over, as well as the patron saint of travelers, immigrants, and working people. Saint Michael, the saint of warriors, but also the sick and the suffering. My mother was also fond of Saint Teresa of Lisieux, the little flower. One pope called her the greatest saint of modern times. Although ranking saints seems a little odd in this spiritual context, as if the other saints were also rans. Saint Teresa who died at twenty-four from tuberculosis, is the patron saint of the sick. Mother Cabrini, the first U.S. citizen to be canonized, spent her life caring for the poor, orphans, the abandoned, and, in particular, Italian immigrants. You begin to see a theme with my mother's saints. Immigrants and orphans, the sick and the dying, the lost and the hopeless a precarious life watched over and protected by a group of kind intermediaries. Her all-time favorite was St. Anne, the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. St. Anne has a roll call of patronage. Broom makers, carpenters, old clothes dealers, equestrians, lace workers, miners, and childless people the poor childless were surrounded by the ferociously fecund Irish and Italian families in our neighborhood. Equestrians weren't much in view, but we had a lace factory in town, and of course, as a depressed former coal town, we had generations of miners sorely in need of saintly intervention. But it was St. Anne's role as protector of mothers that most appealed to my mother She was fond of her own mother, and she always prefaced stories of the long-suffering woman keeping a house together during the Depression with no help from her pickled husband with my poor mother. It was good to know that Anne was looking out for mothers. Hers. Mine. Yours. Our house had its share of holy objects, statues and crucifixes, We had a death-kit crucifix for the service of the dying, extreme unction. It opened up into a mini-altar with a candle-holder. We had a picture of the infant of Prague and a sepia portrait of young Jesus. We had prayer cards and saint cards galore, some of which wound up in a junk drawer. One card, which endlessly fascinated and repelled me, had a gruesome image of Jesus "'covered with bleeding sores. "'Our most distinctive venerable object "'was a large statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, "'daughter of Anne, wife of Joseph, mother of Jesus. "'Sometime in the past, the statue must have fallen, "'and Mary's hands had broken off, "'leaving two wires jutting out "'in a threatening sort of supplication. "'She looked like a vandalized statue,' From a scene in The Exorcist. Despite this disfigurement, my mother kept her on display on a table overlooking the stairs to the second floor of our house. At night, Mary cast a spooky shadow on the wall.
1: Bathtub. Lying in the bathtub, naked with joy, as the hot water with bubbles covers your body, but for your protruding nipples hard, your neck soft, and the wonderful, unique beauty of the incredible head that is home to those piercing eyes, a voice with soulful timbre beyond compare, And a nose of perfect curve and proportion, Your ears and hair with eyebrows exquisitely juxtaposed, Strong and beautifully symmetric. And there you have it, episode 264 of Troubadours and Raconteurs, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, poet, essayist, and digital artist Will Dowd, our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavise, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, and of course these musical artists, Stefan Grappelli, Django Reinhardt, Bill Withers, Stevie Ray Vaughan, 10,000 Maniacs, Jenny Lewis, Terrence Blanchard, and Branford Marsalis, too. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, enjoy this one. Take care.